0: morning welcome to rising we've got another great show planned for you today brianna there's some big news i think that needs to be shared not about us about go ahead (laughs) yeah that's
1: that's right robbie it is official donald trump will seek a second presidential term in 2024 here's a portion of the former president's special announcement from mar-a-lago last night
2: In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Our country is in a horrible state. We're in grave trouble. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence, and the spirit of the American people.
1: Election day 2024 is over 700 days away. However, President Biden has already hit hint at a potential challenger, sharing this ad as Trump spoke from Florida last night.
2: Nobody has ever done what we've done in the last four years.
1: Their entire economic plan, tax cuts for the rich and corporations. And record-breaking
3: unemployment. The worst jobs report on record. Trump is the only modern president to leave office with fewer jobs than when he took office. The Trump administration formally asking the
1: Supreme Court to overturn the Affordable Care Act. This could leave up to 23 million Americans
2: without coverage. I hope that they end It'll be so good if You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no? There has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. And if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons.
0: Trump's announcement comes just a week after Ron DeSantis' red wave landslide in the Sunshine State solidified the Florida governor's status as a serious contender for the GOP's national ticket. New Morning Consult polling finds that after midterms, DeSantis gained seven points in a hypothetical matchup against Trump among Republicans and GOP-leaning independents. The former president, however, still maintains a comfortable lead over DeSantis, earning 47% of those voters' support to DeSantis' 33%. Here's New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu on the potential Look, primary he's been making showdown an announcement
4: tonight. No one's going to be surprised. There'll be no new news. Won't clear the field. Um, he's really making an announcement at one of his weakest political points. Right? I mean, he, we just got crushed in this election. Uh, he's. You can make the argument he's never been uh, weaker politically. It's really a, an announcement from a defensive position, uh, and therefore, I think it's going to make a, a little bit of news, and we're all going to move on. All
0: well, right. that sounds like a little bit of wishful thinking. Yes, no new
1: <laughs> news says no new news, but I'm not sold. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, the narrative has been that Donald Trump was a failure with respect to his um, his, his uh, midterm picks uh, that the DeSantis doing so well in Florida means that he is the better candidate. But I'm not so sure. I saw some commentators last night saying that Trump seemed off his game, that he seemed boring, that he seemed dull. They seemed almost disappointed that he stuck to the script after so many years of people saying, well, if Trump would just stick to the script, he might have even won in 2020. And it does seem like a little bit of wish casting going on because Trump made this point in his speech. He said that his his success rate was 30, 232 wins, 22 losses in his, of his midterm picks, which is not as good as his 98% plus success rate in the primaries, but also isn't exactly the disaster he's, it's being painted as. Some key picks of his did lose some key races that cost Republicans the Senate. But I don't know how much of this is genuinely a, a falling off of the Trump phenomenon or Republicans and establishment Democrats alike really hoping that's the case.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely a fair point. Um, it is clear the establishment um, in, in the GOP, right, the Republican establishment, um, and, and also a lot of conservative media, not everyone, but a lot of people, uh, the Murdoch empire increasingly, you see the New York Post is relentlessly critical of, uh, of Trump these days. They put, his, they put the announcement on page 26. They had something else on the cover <laughs> and they said, the Florida man runs for office, page 26. Very, you know, funny stuff. Uh, so they're really united against Trump. Um, But that won't matter. If viewers and base voters still want Trump, they will get Trump. Um,
1: What do you make of the fact that, you know, he's not on Twitter. I was noticing that it didn't really even seem to trend or make that much of a blip blip last night. It does feel like, some of his power is from being able to harness the media. And if the media actually learned its lesson from 2016 and shuts him out and he's not able to self-publish on Twitter in the way that he used to, do you think that's going to have an effect? Well, this is going to be interesting.
0: We turn to Elon now. Uh, Elon <laughs> is a, an increasingly right-of-center figure, has said he would support someone like a DeSantis, but would not support a Trump. He mm. said that. Mm. Um, if, so if you're him and you're committed to using Twitter to help elect the candidates you want to elect, I mean he said he tweeted before the elections i 'm mm-hmm. voting for Republicans. I think it'd be better to have divided government he 's been very clear he wants Republicans, but not trump and or, or maybe then not the very trumpist republicans either uh, and if he 's going to be willing to use Twitter for that end. Keeping Trump off the platform is a very good idea. Yeah, for um, sure. Because and putting Trump back on the platform would make him more likely, I think, to win a kind of primary, and then but then also like less likely to win a general yeah. election.
1: Yeah. I mean, one other point:
0: uh, if he really hates Trump, he would keep him off Twitter uh, for the primaries, and then and then put him <laughs> back on. If then if, if Trump w- won the Republican primary, and Elon wants him to lose, then he'd let him back on Twitter.
1: <laughs> well, look, I, I think some one other aspect of this is that Trump may, might not be now that there has been this shift in the republican party mm-hmm. where there are a lot of figures that have frankly outpaced him in terms of leaning in on some of these culture war takes um, talking about wokeness talking about trans kids in schools talking about the 1619 project and you mm-hmm. know you know crt and those kinds of things that stuff was noticeably absent from the speech last night and it's unclear to me at this point whether that's going to inert to his benefit or harm him. Is he someone who is going to actually appear more moderate and do better than some of the more extremist conservative candidates that lost last week?
0: That's that's an interesting point. I don't think the mainstream media will ever ever let anyone get away in respectable circles with portraying Trump as the as the moderate. I mean, I remember <laughs> there were some people who said that even last, even before he ran for president, before he was elected president in the first place, there I remember a, a couple at least um, it takes from kind of mainstream or normy liberal people saying, actually, you know, Trump is more moderate than some, than uh, than Ted Cruz or something. Right, Which, because in some ways he, he's just yeah. not—he's not temperamentally more moderate.
1: But we're not in Ted Cruz land anymore. Now we're in Kerry Lake land, and even Ron DeSantis land, where he's been hitting that culture war stuff. Hard in Florida. What did he say? Florida's where wokeness comes yeah. to die, or something like that. After his red wave but in that the
0: state, that, I mean, that worked in a state that used to not be. they used to be a, the consummate swing state, and is now a very conservative state where they uh, he, he has put together a coalition of, of of people, even you know some centrist moderates, independents, Democrats, immigrants, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Hispanic community, uh, doing coming out for DeSantis in Florida, sure. not necessarily the rest of the country, but there in Florida. But that's it's been the successful. thing.
1: The, the test is whether or not DeSantis can. His medal in the rest of the country, where, per the polls we just read, Donald Trump still has much higher popularity. And again, we haven't seen Ron DeSantis speak and yeah. kind of engage on a national stage the way that we have Donald Trump. So there's a lot of unknown unknowns there. I see a lot of folks willing to kind of write uh, Donald Trump off right out of the gate, saying that he was low energy. It was a low energy kind of a presentation. Yeah. But I'm interested to see how this actually plays well, out. Well,
0: and, uh, and DeSantis responded. DeSantis kind of hit back gently. Oh, do We, we actually have, we have that, uh, that clip, I think. We were going to play that. Right? We were not going to play that. I thought that was in the. OK. Okay, you're gonna, okay. Pretend you added it here. So that's DeSantis saying that uh, you know, pointing out that well, he's gonna let. Maybe that's how he's gonna play. Well, Trump can talk, say what he you know. Not he's not gonna directly uh, fight back because he doesn't want to make people who like Trump angry. Right. But uh, I think that's probably going to be the right tone to take. Yeah, and a lot we... of people
1: are doing that dance. Don't make Trump angry. Yeah. His, his own daughter has said that while she respects his right to run, that she won't be participating this time, that she's going to look out for the interests of her family. You saw Mike Pence do that in interview um, earlier in the week, where he it was largely about and critical of the events of 1-6, but when push came to shove and he was asked whether or not he would support uh, Donald Trump uh, run, he says, well, that's up to the American people. So I think a lot of folks are in a wait-and-see position right mm-hmm.
0: now. Interesting. Well, the best thing Mike Pence and other Republicans who don't want it to be trump the best thing for them to do would be to get behind desantis Mm -hmm. if it's a divided field that would be the best news for donald trump we could absolutely repeat the 2016 primaries Mm -hmm. if you know every every single republican with aspirations of one day having a television show on fox news decides to run for president that's that would be another very easy way to Mm -hmm. get donald trump again Mm -hmm. all right there were some major developments late yesterday afternoon on russia's war in eastern europe we will discuss that coming up next Two people were killed in Poland yesterday after Soviet-era missiles of an unidentified origin were dropped on farmland near the Ukrainian border. Polish and NATO officials confirmed early this morning that despite initial speculation, there is nothing to indicate the rocket was a Russian attack on Poland. In fact, initial investigations indicate the missile was likely launched by Ukrainian forces in defense of the country's energy grid. Here's Here's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg after yesterday's emergency meeting. We have no indication that this was the result of a deliberate attack. And we have no indication that Russia is preparing offensive military actions against NATO. Well... A little too close for comfort there.
1: Yeah. So as many people pointed out, what was most concerning about this was the kind of reaction that came from Ukrainian officials, including Zelensky, before the origin of the missile had been identified. So, you know, he was saying NATO needs to act, you know, declaring that this was a Russian missile strike, describing it as a very serious escalation, Um, you know. This is exactly the scenario that so many people have been warning about, and why having a proxy war of this nature with countries that are bound by Article 5 is so dangerous. Um, and the, the the kind of um, escalatory language that came out of Ukraine before the facts were even known, pushing for further engagement, pushing for World War Three. I mean, World War III was trending on Twitter for exactly this reason, and it doesn't give people a lot of assurance to know that this is basically who's who's running ukraine this this kind of energy that doesn't seem to really be accommodating the risks at play here
0: sure and i i get uh the polish authorities point that so they're they're very much not blaming ukraine they're saying well ukraine it's defending itself from russian missiles this is very tragic but we don't hold ukraine responsible they're defending themselves in fact if we're holding anyone responsible we're holding russia for engaging for, for being the ones aggressing in this war that caused this result, which I, I, I take all of that. I think that makes intuitive sense. Um, yes, this is Russia's fault. Yes, Russia should desist from this aggressive effort to occupy Ukraine, which has brought us to the brink of World War III. But we we don't have that much power. Unfortunately, we don't. we can't just us pontificating about it. We can't snap our fingers and make Putin stop doing this. I wish we could. But we can't. We have control over what? the u s does, and we have control over what money and funding we give and what strings come attached with that, so we can set some terms in how in, in what the the dialogue and the discourse should should be like from our allies who who I understand are defending themselves, but we can't put the entire planet at risk over a territorial dispute
1: right well so as you probably remember, there was a big brouhaha just a week or two ago over the CPC letter, which was b- pushing for peace for these kinds of reasons, saying, you know, obviously this is going to end a negotiation. You know, obviously the risk of World War III and having an engagement with a nuclear power like this are very high. It seems like a no-brainer to say peace is the solution that got a lot of pushback, as we covered extensively on this show and on my own, including from a... Uh, Bernie uh, foreign policy advisor, someone who has a long history of working in the de, uh, denuclearization space as a progressive, who was very uh, critical of the idea of anybody pushing for negotiations, saying that it was tantamount to setting the terms of Ukraine bending the knee and, and surrendering, I, I think basically. he said you were
0: glossing over dead children in mass graves. Correct. <laughs> you, personally. Correct. You, I, Brianna J. I have Gray. been
1: accused of being a genocide denier yes. in the wake of that interview. Interestingly, though, the tide has seemed to have turned shortly after all of that went down. The Biden administration started very publicly talking about its negotiations um, with Russia and Ukraine, and now just nice, yesterday know we got through to him.
0: We got through to <laughs> we got through to Joe.
1: <laughs> just yesterday, Joe Serranzioni yes. had a had a wheel turn as well, um, tweeting the Ukraine war must end as quickly as possible. I strongly support peace negotiations and diplomacy. Now, this was uh, the kind of statement that got you labeled as a Putin puppet. Uh, treasonous Mm -hmm. um, uh, genocide lover just a couple of weeks ago. And so I say that only to say it seems like we're moving in the right direction and events like this this missile bombing, this accident, I think uh, are going to only contribute to jolting people into realizing what the stakes
0: are here. Mm -hmm. And we interviewed uh, Representative Ro Khanna yesterday on the show. It's a great interview. Everybody should check that out. One of the only, um, maybe he was literally the only Democrat who who participated in that letter who did not cowardly walk best. it back yeah. or renounce his support for it. He said, no, I, I still support it. It was a very mild letter, um, et cetera. Um, now would be a great time to hear from from more of the Republicans in the House uh, for whom unlimited funding to Ukraine is something they said would be would, would be. Put under scrutiny, under increased scrutiny, given what's going on. Obviously, we're, and we're going to talk more about the battle for for control of the house, not for control of the house, control of the houses in Repo- safe, pretty safely, mm-hmm. so, slightly safely in Republican hands now. But who is actually going to be the speaker yeah. of the Republicans? Probably Kevin McCarthy. But you know, there's more to uh, work out there, and what that means for US's Ukraine policy will remain to be seen. But but yes, it's you know, mistakes happen in war. You know you blow up the wrong thing people friendly people get killed um, american forces were killed by americans in in iraq and afghanistan and probably every war we've ever participated in um, but and also right friend you've missiles cross border things bad things can happen and what that can happens? touch off yeah. right that could touch off yeah. global catastrophe and that's why it is it is so important to put an end to this before some act something goes some the wrong you know the wrong COMMANDO ON A SUBMARINE PRESSES THE WRONG BUTTON AND WE yeah. HAVE WORLD WAR Three.
1: THIS WAS AN ACCIDENT, RIGHT? AND WE ACCEPT, the, THE INTERNATIONAL COMMUNITY IS ACCEPTING THAT IT WAS AN ACCIDENT, THAT UKRAINE DIDN'T MEAN TO KILL THESE TWO POLISH PEOPLE BECAUSE THERE'S NO MOTIVE THERE. Right. THERE'S A WORLD WHERE IT COULD ALSO BE A RUSSIAN ACCIDENT AND WHERE THE WORLD WOULD NOT ACCEPT THE MOTIVE yeah. AS ACCIDENT, YOU KNOW, THEY WOULD yeah. NOT ACCEPT THE PREMISE THAT RUSSIA ACCIDENTALLY KILLED TWO POLISH INDIVIDUALS AND NOW WE'RE IN WORLD WAR Three. AND SO EVERYONE SHOULD JUST REALLY SIT WITH THAT and think about that counterfactual and what that means
0: you know, for the survival of our yeah. society. Absolutely. All right, well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Well, Brianna, I'm bracing myself for your <laughs> radar. What's up?
1: Well, Ravi, some people are asking whether Joe Biden has lived up to his Trump-appointed nickname, Lion Biden, Once again, now that his plan to cancel $10,000 of student debt for nearly 44 million Americans was enjoined by the courts. Last week, just days after young voters warded off the red wave, both an 8th Circuit court and a Texas judge vacated a policy that served as a huge inducement to get young voters to the polls, student debt cancellation. Some people are asking, did Biden ever intend to cancel any debt in the first place? Now, let's take a closer look at how this played out. The Texas judge, Judge Pittman, argued that the legislative authority Biden used as a hook for his executive power, the HEROES Act, was too narrow. It's a post-9-11 act intended to provide debt relief for first responders and the like. The Biden administration argued that COVID was a similar type of emergency, but it doesn't take a legal expert to see the holes in that theory. As I explained over a month ago on this very program and also on my own podcast, Bad Faith, Biden has repeatedly claimed that the COVID crisis is over. Moreover, the Supreme Court, through its rulings, has indicated that it agrees, striking down other COVID-era programs like the eviction moratorium and vaccine mandates. It's obvious that the COVID hook is just a pretext for a policy that's not really COVID-based. Heck, even Biden himself has said the reason we need student debt relief is the structural problems which have led to high education costs. And he's right. But instead of using the Higher Education Act of 1965, which was designed to address exactly that type of problem, he used a legislative hook, which seemed designed to fail, not just because of conservative judges, but liberal judges too. Here's what Fordham law professor Jed Sugarman had to say on my podcast a month ago.
4: I think the Biden administration could lose this 9 nothing. And instead of running against the Roberts Court, thinking it's a win, I think it'll be an embarrassment that is, that actually uh, frustrates, uh, that that alienates the base, because it says you were incompetent, and that's that's my real concern here. Is is I, I you know I I have to be I, it, this 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 experience of finding this problem has made me a little more cynical about about the about what the what the goals are here. Um, well, is that welcome yes. to the club? I, well, yes. I mean, I, I I wish I could say that I you now I wasn't pessimistic when I wrote this piece because yeah. the subtitle was was optimistic. There's time to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is time to fix it. But I guess if there's anyone out there who's working in the Department of Education. And, you know, and you left your job somewhere, you know, you left your job in, the, in some other education department in some state, or you left a job in the private sector because you wanted to get things done, but you weren't so worried about getting a couple more purple state Democrats into.
1: And as a reminder, student debt payments have been suspended since Trump was president. And since the authority used to do so was the Higher Education Act, why would someone choose to pivot from an authority which has held up without challenge for years. The administration's incompetence gets even worse than that, though. You see, the people who have standing to uh, challenge student debt cancellation, mostly the corporations hired to process student debt by the government, they were going to mount a challenge to the policy regardless of what legal authority Biden relied upon. That's why advocates at the Debt Collective, the leading student debt advocacy group, have been warning that Biden should not delay relief. He should just do it cancel student debt immediately day one remember the debt is federally held just like i could say hey don't worry about paying me back if i bought you lunch biden can simply forgive it and once canceled the debt would be exceedingly difficult to reassign the eighth circuit the first court that blocked relief all but admitted that this was why an injunction was necessary it's precisely because it's a policy that's very hard to undo but biden put his desire to Means test the policy ahead of his commitment to actually making sure student debt cancellation goes into effect. By announcing it and then putting up an application and giving people weeks to fill it out, he gave corporate backed groups, angling to maintain the status quo, time to forum shop. That is, to find a friendly judge and get an injunction. Instead of taxing any unfair windfalls back from the rich, no one now is going to get relief. And maybe. Just maybe this is what Biden wanted all along. Remember, Joe Biden was colloquially known as a senator from MBNA, a major bank since acquired by Bank of America, which, like many corporations, is headquartered in Delaware, where Biden was a senator for 36 years. Delaware's corporate-friendly laws attracted corporations, and those corporations elected politicians who served their interests. It's no accident that Joe Biden is why students unlike most other debtors, find it next to impossible to discharge their loans in bankruptcy. Biden had to be dragged kicking and screaming to $10,000 in debt cancellation, and his since-forgotten promise to cancel all debt for graduates of historically black colleges and universities now looks like a last-ditch bid to turn out much-needed black voters in the 2020 Georgia runoff. But like his promise to send out $2,000 checks and to fight for a $15 minimum wage, his commitment to, f- to, to full HBCU cancellation is never brought up by the Democratic Party acolytes who claim to care so much about black voters. In his $10,000 of student debt, the victory that he announced was about as short-lived as Dr. Oz's Pennsylvania residency. Now, when I first raised the possibility that Biden's student debt plan was a bait-and-switch over a month ago, I was tentative. I hoped for the best, but feared for the worst. But when Thursday's court decision came down, just days after the youth vote was shown to be the levy that stopped the red wave, it was difficult not to draw certain conclusions. Now, I can't prove anything, but a pattern is certainly emerging. Democrats authorized Cory Bush's protest on the steps of Congress and then acquiesced to her demand to continue the eviction moratorium. The left celebrated, but the next day, the Supreme Court found it unconstitutional. Would Democrats have agreed to the extension had they known that the victory would be so short-lived? Had they not known, rather, that it would be so short-lived? I don't know, truly. Similar questions are now mounting around student debt cancellation, but this situation differs from the eviction moratorium because the decision isn't yet final. Joe Biden may prove his motives one way or the other still to come. Will he cancel student debt or not? As a lawyer for the debt collective sparky abraham tweeted last week if potus had just canceled student debt and announced it after the fact courts wouldn't have been able to stop it he can still do that he can still do that if he doesn't it will be difficult for him to argue that he made a good faith effort to follow through on his campaign promises i'm not asking anyone to take my theory here on faith but it is important that Biden be pressured to do what he can do to save this program. And liberal apologists, I got to tell you, you aren't helping blue check Georgetown professor Don Moynihan jumped at the opportunity to defend Biden, but not with an actual argument. Instead, he pretended that there was some inconsistency between my claim that it's within Biden's executive power to cancel student debt. And my argument that he chose bad legal authority as a hook for said executive power perhaps intentionally. Don's reasoning skills aren't (laughs) making the best case for the value of higher education, I'm afraid. Also not making the best case, the plaintiffs in the Texas case, one of whom is literally suing on the grounds that he isn't poor enough to qualify for the $20,000 of relief available only to Pell Grant recipients, i.e., the poorest debtors. The other is suing on the grounds that she has private loans that didn't qualify for Biden's policy. And while I would happily cancel her debt if I were designing the program, my sympathy for her is diminished somewhat by her willingness to take $48,000 in PPP loans without complaint. It takes a liberal to enthusiastically and uncritically side with these characters and the senator from MBNA against millions of eligible student debtors, 90% of whom make less than $75,000 a year. Social workers, teachers, truckers, nurses your kids, your grandparents, and your spouses. But here we are, liberals leading other liberals to the slaughter, insisting that Biden is just a stand-up, ice cream-loving guy doing his best. The truth is that there are only two options here, that Joe Biden intentionally designed this policy in a way that made it highly unlikely that any student debt would be canceled, or that his administration is filled with incompetence. And I got to say, Neither bodes well for the future of the nation.
0: Hmm. Well, I sincerely hope this program <laughs> fails. I'm not sure. I mean, this is interesting. I'm not sure that I do think Biden um, set it up to fail on purpose. Why is but, that? Um, it seems too Machiavellian for him. Well,
1: what, what explanation is there? Because there were warnings about this, right? Jed Sugarman, the, the uh, law professor that I interviewed yeah. on my show, he didn't just pop up on a little indie podcast. He wrote an article on the in the Atlantic. He first was engaging in a, in a different article. Um, with uh, Larry Tribe, Harvard law professor, and then ended up getting his own spinoff article in The Atlantic elaborating on why he had concerns about how Biden's uh, Maybe Biden can't design. get out
0: of, it's a pandemic, I can do whatever I want mindset. Like that's his preferred rationalization for things because that's how he's governed. For right, the well last...
1: that would be incompetence. Yeah. So that's the other option. No, I, that's what I think it is. But, but the reality of the situation is they had been warned for a long time the advocates over at the Debt Collective, who have been really uh, championing this policy since long before Biden mm-hmm. won the, the primary, have been very clear about what the strategic avenues are that would best lead to success. And there is a reason why they have been saying he should cancel student debt day one. At their rallies, they have a giant pen that's like the size of a man, and they hoist it around, and they say, he can do it with a stroke of a pen, he should do it day one. And part of the, this is part of the reason, that Biden has literally given challengers the opportunity to make these bad faith arguments. You don't have to support student debt to appreciate that it's a ridiculous argument to say, I, am t- I, I make too much money to qualify for the program, and therefore it, it, it is unfair to me. And other legal experts have gotten more into the weeds about how some of the actual legal findings in the Eighth, Cir- Eighth Circuit case in particular are, are just bad law. But that's for lawyers to work out. In the meantime, the, 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 sorry, the student loan moratorium was supposed to end at the end of the year. It's unclear what's going to happen. The Biden administration has made noises about extending it. But even that can't be indefinite because that is a COVID-era program as well. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Democratic voters got duped. And they went to the polls thinking that Biden did something good for them. Young voters in particular thought that Biden did something good for them. And now there's a cover-up. In place to try to make it seem like biden was a good faith actor and couldn't have predicted any of this and i think that's that's not right and voters should know what they're they're going into if they're going to vote for democrats
0: sure i think if it makes it to the su- Supreme Court, which it might, I-, I think under any legal justification, the Supreme Court was is likely to find that this doesn't hold up. Yeah. And then I, and then Democrats and Biden will blame the Supreme Court and say, you need to elect I- I more, think you right. need to elect Democrats in perpetuity yeah. until we can like replace the Supreme Court with Democrats, and, something yeah. that's going to take 50 years.
1: Yeah. And then in Joe Biden's parlance, I just happen to think that that's malarkey and mm. Democrats need to wake up.
0: All right, more rising after this. Stay with us.
1: House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has been selected by Republicans to be the next Speaker of the House. The California Congressman overwhelmingly bested his sole challenger, Representative uh, from Arizona, Andy Biggs, by a 188 to 31 vote margin during a private conference meeting.
0: I'm proud to announce the era of one-party Democrat rule in Washington is over. Washington now has a check and balance. The American people have a say in their government
2: and this new Republican leadership team is ready to get to work to put America back on the right track. It was our commitment to America that we would create an economy that is strong, a nation that is safe,
0: a future that is built on freedom, and a government that is accountable. And that's exactly what we'll do. McCarthy won the nomination for the speakership by a simple majority. However, Biggs' challenge signals the Republican leader may have a tough road ahead to rally the grand old party after disappointing midterm results. Next is a vote for the entire House. Should McCarthy fail to get the full backing of at least 218 lawmakers, Democrats could thwart his rise to speaker. So in this... This secret ballot election to determine who is the leader of the Republican um, conference in the House, uh, that is only a simple majority. There's ne- never in doubt that Kevin McCarthy would win that. The fact that he has 30 people voting against him here does not matter. But does matter if, if, the, if those 30 holdouts, I mean, obviously they're not going to vote for Democrats, but they could cause some kind of wrinkle because for the speaker race, he needs the entire the, the majority of the entire House. Yeah. Not a plurality, and a this majority. Is,
1: this is where the conversations about Liz in. Cheney, these like fever dreams yeah. that some liberals are putting out there about her um, becoming Speaker of the House, are coming from. It's yeah. the fact that you need to get more than the fifty percent number, not just a uh, bare majority. Um,
0: but those, and those thirty people don't want the people who vote against. McCarthy, don't want Liz Cheney. They, they think McCarthy is too much like a Liz Cheney, which is kind of ridiculous, but they want a, they want a more conservative. Well, we were talking, I should just share that we were talking yeah. to the brain. You were asking, well, who is even more conservative? The words conservative and right wing just no longer mean what they used to. They are now basically have been redefined to mean most pro-Trump. Not even most pro the policies of Trump, but most willing to condone the kind of outrageous things he says generally about the election and some other claims. So so you could have someone who is like like what is what is even the, the conservative position on let's say free trade. Hmm. It used to be the conservative position was we should have unlimited free with the more free trade we can possibly have the better and kind of protectionism was a more democratic view. Now those positions have kind of flipped. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there's a policy change going on so it's hard to say what is the conservative view. But but really the way we're talking about it it's who is the so so a candidate, so Kerry Lake is extremely conservative. Even if, because she condo- she actually voices the things Trump says, mm-hmm. B- not about policy. Yeah, she could is- have a more moderate abortion policy than someone else, and that way, I don't know that she does. But if I she did, that, that, she that wouldn't does. matter. That wouldn't matter. But well, but so like Ron DeSantis um, uh, has a more was in support of a more moderate abortion policy, for instance, than the Georgia governor Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp wanted like a, I think a six week mm-hmm. cutoff. DeSantis, it's like it's the fifteen week yeah, cutoff. Yeah, I believe so. so in a sense, Ron DeSantis on that issue would be more moderate than Brian Kemp. But in the, in the discourse of how we describe these things, Ron DeSantis is quite conservative because he doesn't contradict Trump or go, no, he doesn't, con- he doesn't but say but that, the things Trump the wants thing. him to say, the, the, whereas Brian Kemp, who actually stood up to Trump, even though he's a more conservative abortion policy, would be considered like a moderate or even liberal-leaning Republican, having nothing to do with underlying policy. It's just about how much... You will say what Trump wants you to say.
1: Well, this why I was asking was in the context, obviously, of McCarthy versus Biggs, because Biggs is a Freedom Caucus guy. And McCarthy is someone who is known to have had a very positive relationship with Donald Trump. I was listening to a story just recently about how he apparently identified that Donald Trump liked the pink and red uh, starbursts, a relatable Position mm. and so McCarthy took to bringing pink him gifts red. of the pink and red Starbucks, uh, sorry, um, Starburst when he uh, visited him. Those are absolutely like, the
0: top-ranking flavors. <laughs> Nothing wrong there. Yeah, orange, <laughs> orange is gone. What is the other Starburst flavor? Yellow. yellow? Yeah, yeah, but the,
1: here's the thing. Like so, there, this is not someone who has had an acrimonious relationship with Donald Trump. But you're, what you're saying is the difference is that Kevin McCarthy has moderated some of the election denial and some of the more extreme positions. What is interesting going forward and having watched Trump's announcement speech uh, last night is. Uh, announcing his indication that he's going to run for office, is that Trump also wasn't doing election denial? Trump also didn't mention uh, abortion. He didn't do any of the stop the steal stuff, and so it's unclear to me what you know what either of these camps' objections are. If even the if even Donald Trump isn't being mm-hmm. conservative, as you've described, I mean it.
0: Kevin McCarthy has been a, a, the leader of the House faction of the GOP for a while. So if you are someone who Is very pro-Trump and wants to like need someone to blame, and you can't blame Trump, then you have to just blame the kind of the GOP establishment, who who that is, and that is Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. It's almost a guilt by association type thing. I don't know that he's actually done anything to really offend. He's certainly done a better job than Mitch McConnell. He has not turned off Trump people in quite the same way that McConnell has. Um, So I, I think he will ultimately become the speaker. But uh, but it, it's been interesting to hear some dissenting notes from people like Matt Gates. Um, we had uh, we had Josh Hawley making claim. Uh, yeah, he didn't mention Kevin McCarthy specifically. Josh Hawley, the Senate Missouri Republican Senate candidate, said something to the effect of "This has been this is the death of the Republican Party. We need to just right. restart I, it." Yeah, let's, I, uh, we, I think we have that clip.
1: Yeah, well, with 219 seats, Republicans have officially clenched control of the House. Questions have arisen as to whether current House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will remain in Democratic leadership at all. She told CNN's Dana Bash Sunday that her decision will be based on what the Democratic caucus wants. Let's
2: watch. My decision will again be rooted in what uh, the wishes of my family and uh, the wishes of my caucus but none of it will be very much considered until we see what the outcome of all of this is. But there are all kinds of ways to exert influence. You just The speaker has awesome power, but I will always have influence.
0: In the same round of Sunday morning show appearances, she told ABC's George Stephanopoulos that she does not intend to leave Congress. Hmm.
1: The contrast here, and I mentioned this yesterday, but the contrast between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party on these matters of leadership, it's mind-boggling the way Democrats talk about any potential challenge to Pelosi they act like she's Lord Voldemort and if they speak her name <laughs> it will create problems for them down the line that they'll never recover from no one's even willing to contemplate the idea of there ever being a challenge to Nancy Pelosi for speakership even people like AOC who basically ran and rallied the left on the promise that she was going to be oppositional to Nancy Pelosi and wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi when given an opportunity similar to the one that Republicans have now because of the narrative margins by which Democrats won in the last round, could have obstructed Nancy Pelosi. Progressives could have kept Nancy Pelosi from being Speaker of the House for as long as it took in getting any concession until they they, they wanted until she ultimately bent the knee. They wouldn't even entertain the conversation. They wouldn't even talk about it. Not a single one. And you heard uh, Representative Kahn on the show yesterday. You know, it's up to her. I respect her age. I respect what she's she's been, been able to do for the Democratic
0: Party. There's just no appetite for it. And, and no one elderly. here is talking about just, reprisals. She should just retire. She should spend time with her husband. They just went through a horrible thing. Um, they, people just are not, will not let go of power. Yeah. they will not let go. Of yeah, power. And, and
1: and and Democrats pretending like this is like about respecting and supporting Nancy Pelosi or not being ageist. I think they're really missing the forest for the trees here. We won't. Even, we can't even have a conversation about who subsequent speakers might be on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. They might not be successful in. Uh, you know, putting someone forward other than uh, Kevin McCarthy. But the fact that there's even a conversation that's being allowed, I think, frankly, speaks to the health of the party. Now, some people might disagree and say, this is Republicans in disarray. It's going to help them and, uh, hurt them in the long run. But there do seem to be so many ideological options for people with different um, ideological bearings within the, the Republican Party that's attracted to folks. And I gotta say, a lot of people increasingly on the left don't see themselves represented anywhere within the Democratic Party. And I think that's gonna hurt, especially if um, Joe Biden continues to disappoint on some key promises he's made.
0: Hmm. Well, we will keep discussing this and we'll have more rising coming up next.
1: The FBI allegedly may have had informants in the Proud Boys, according to reporting by The New York Times, court papers suggest the FBI possibly had up to eight informants in the group. The Times notes that the documents came to light following several court filings by defense attorneys for five members of the Proud Boys, who are scheduled to go on trial next month for charges related to the Capitol riots.
0: Still unclear what the FBI was asking of its informants and how focused they were on the group's activities ahead of January 6th, but court documents suggest that some Proud Boy members were recruited by the FBI before the election to provide information about their adversaries in Antifa. Meanwhile, at Homeland Security meetings this week, Representative Clay Higgins questioned FBI Director Christopher Wray on whether the FBI had any part in causing the January 6th attacks. Let's watch. Director Wray, does does the FBI have confidential human sources?
4: Um, Did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters?
0: on January 6th 2021? Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when Even are,
3: now, because that's what I'm you not, told us two finish, years
0: ago. May I finish? Uh, about when we do and do not, and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, but to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, That the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false.
5: Did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the
2: Capitol on January the 6th prior to the doors being open?
0: Again, I had to be very careful. It should be a
2: no. Can you not tell the American people no? We did
4: not have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters positioned inside the Capitol.
2: Gentlemen's time has expired. You should not
0: read anything into my decision.
2: Uh,
1: the implication there, I'm not sure it lines up. You know, if there are FBI informants. Um, at the Capitol, there were a lot of people at the Capitol. There were videographers, there were reporters, yeah. there were looky loos, there were a lot of people there that weren't necessarily. I was necessarily. there.
0: I was covering it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. covering it, Um, You know, there were a lot of people there, so I, and I don't know why there was that dance around that last final point. I don't know what, what, what gives yeah. but not wanting to concede that point either, but that's
0: Yeah, uh, so obviously, there are some um, Republican, Trumpier figures who want to suggest and wanted to suggest from the beginning that uh, this is, uh, you know, what happened at January 6th was somehow orchestrated, or there was heavy FBI involvement. Uh, they, they wanted this to happen because it would discredit Trump and the MAGA movement because it was so embarrassing. You know, b- people have tried out, people who want to find a way to dance around have, have tried um, a, a variety of strategies. One was, well, there's the, it's not that bad. There's the, oh, it's actually left-wing activists and Antifa were doing it, and the, the one that seems to have stuck or landed the most, um, in, in truth, because it's more plausible is that because there was FBI involvement and they wanted to do something. We've seen, and we have seen, you know, law enforcement malfeasance in some levels sure. with, uh, based on intelligence reports, Hunter Biden laptop story, etc. And it is absolutely true that the FBI and law enforcement in general have a long and storied history of embedding themselves in extremist groups. Like where sometimes at the meeting of the extremist group, like everyone there is an under, is, is yeah, undercover I mean, this, FBI or an informant the, for the FBI or a journalist or like undercover for a human rights this, this organization. This is the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping, which plot was one hundred percent. If you, the closer you look at it, it just was nothing at all like what it appeared. It, 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 it only went forward because the FBI was paying mm-hmm. the chief organizer to continue to organize it. They they want that's the interesting thing. It's not they don't learn about something and then shut it down. Right. They learn about it and then have continue so that then they have evidence to prosecute those people. They're prosecuted. What prosecutors D- do, what they do is it comes right up to like inducing you to commit a crime so that they can arrest you for it, and, and this sure. has happened to Muslim teenagers over and over and sure. over again, where they meet someone online who's like who wants wants to sell them weapons for some terrorist attack. That person is always an FBI yet, agent, always.
1: And yet, unless someone is alleging that Donald Trump himself is an FBI informant, it's really hard to get around the statements that he made that day. That are the yes. statements that are becoming under scrutiny.
0: So all that aside, so despite yeah. all of that, we, it, again, clear that the the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, all Patriot Prayer, these kind of right wing militia groups, um, in, in the same way that like the mafia, like if you watch Sopranos, it ends up, everyone is act, is at some point or another ends up being an informant for the FBI because law enforcement gets turned on to these activities and then gets you on something and then turns. It just happens over and over again. And also, these are not like the smartest, tend <laughs> not to be the smartest individuals ever. All of that aside, the attack on the Capitol, based on my read, my witnessing your, of your it, first,
1: first-hand account,
0: was very spontaneous yeah. and was not um, was not organized or driven by by this by specific individuals. Um, it, it was um, it was a spontaneous riot, got out of hand because the crowd was very um, hyper, very worked up because of things that Trump had said and other factors and and the people like the people who, who went in, I, I I think they were it was a spontaneous outburst and sincere yeah, and I don't think it was remember. I, it was not coordinated enough for specific officials working at the government's behest to have done it it it, it simply was not
1: And Donald Trump wasn't some Muslim teen being seduced on the internet, he was someone who was surrounded by advisors who were all begging him not to say the things he did and do the things that he did. Remember, there was reports of, I forget which yeah. female Fox News host, was it Greta? One of them calling Donald Trump and begging him, telling him this was not a good look, don't do this. Everyone told him He had many to. opportunities to correct yeah. his behavior and chose not to. So if this is an issue that's being you know raised right now, partly because of Donald Trump's um, announcement that he's going to run for president in 2024, and this is supposed to be you know, exculpatory in some way, I'm not sure this is going to land with the people that you mm-hmm. need it to land with. But maybe it does start to provide sufficient cover for those who still want to be on the Trump train and are frustrated by the idea that there's the collective commitment mm-hmm. by the media, it seems, to go ahead and back DeSantis as a sure bet.
0: I think the tendency also to be critical, to scrutinize um, law enforcement and national, it's very interesting. It's very selective these days, mm. depending on who we're talking, you know. I mean, there are there are mainstream people on mainstream or progressive liberal media who are very critical of police when we're talking about yeah, but you know, they Black Floyd. but think friend. the FBI is their best friend. Even worse, they 're be critical the of the
1: FBI if we're talking about the 1960s, but magically I guess they think it's a good it's a good FBI yeah. when it's under the Biden administration.
0: Yeah, so there should be a, a lot of well-founded criticism of law enforcement. I'm hardened to see that on the Republican side. And again, I'm not naive. What we're learning about the Hunter Biden investigation and some other things are very look very bad for this organization. I would like to see a wholesale cleaning of house reforms for the FBI, NSA, Homeland Security. I would abolish the TSA. I would abolish significant, I would wholesale cancel out a lot of these organizations, but I would have done that, you know, I would have done that 15 years ago as well. And and Republicans when they had power when Donald Trump was president, didn't do a thing, mm-hmm. did not do a single thing to rein in any of these agencies. Mm. So it's a little bit of sour grapes now to complain about, oh, how unfair they are. Well, you didn't, they didn't do anything about the FISA. They only cared about FISA courts when maybe they were looking at Trump. Mm-hmm. No interest otherwise. You have to be... Principled, and you have to, you know, want to take away these tools from the government, even even when you, your people are running it.
1: Well, I'm sure we'll have a lot more conversations about this now that Republicans have the House and can uh, mount investigations at, as as they will. Uh, so we'll be following that story, and we'll have more Rising for you coming up next. According to CNN, Iranian state media is reporting the first death sentence, linked to recent protests in the country, has been issued by an Iranian court, convicting the unnamed person of, quote, enmity against God and spreading corruption on Earth. This comes after reporting from Newsweek, stating that the Iranian parliament issued a letter calling for severe punishments of protesters on Tuesday, which was reportedly followed by chance of death to seditionists. Newsweek reached out to the Iranian government for comment.
0: Iranians have been taking to the streets like never before, protesting the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, in mid-September. It is believed that Amini was arrested by the country's morality police for reportedly not wearing the proper form of hijab during a visit to Tehran. Amini was allegedly severely beaten while in custody, and those injuries led to her untimely death. According to Newsweek, Iranian authorities have denied the accusation. Human rights lawyer and director of the Miyan Group, Mani Mustafi, is here with us to discuss. Welcome, Mani. Thanks for joining us.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: So, what is going on here? Uh, We've heard a lot of uh, rumors, obviously hard to verify, of various death sentences. Um, Are they are people actually being executed? What's the what's the truth of this?
2: Yeah, the truth is. There's been some misreporting about this, but the situation is quite grim. Um, We're seeing right now the largest protests in the history of the Islamic Republic. There's unity across ethnicity or across class, across gender, across the region. And that has scared authorities and they have responded the way they typically do with violence to invoke fear. And one of their tools of violence is um, executions and the death penalty. Uh, The parliament came out and Basically called for the um, the execution of seditionists. This has sort of been misreported as every person arrested from the protest, which is about fifteen thousand people, have been. You know, there's been a call for execution of them. That's not what has happened. But what has happened is around ten people have had sentences, and between three and five people now have, um, you know, execution verdicts. Um, What's alarming about this is that. As far as we can tell, none of these trials have included lawyers. Lawyers are largely being kept out of these cases, which means that our information about it is quite um, limited. But it's very clear that they're trying to um, um, enact severe punishment for anything that they see as dissent that they, and that they're not going to tolerate it.
1: Can you give us a sense of the scale? You said that there were the largest protest ever. Um, you know, Give us a sense of the scale, what that looks like and what that means for life in Iran right now.
2: Yeah, sure. So the easiest thing to do would to be compare them to the last episode of really large protests, which was in 2009 after a disputed election. Those were sort of um, confined to middle class areas of um, you know, the central cities of Iran, like Tehran, Shiraz. And these are majority Persian ethnic areas. But um, Masajina, she was a Kurd, and these protests have been taking place in Kurdistan, Balochistan, Arab regions. They've been in small towns, big towns. Um, They're centered around a women's rights issue, but they're much broader than that. Um, You're seeing Southern Tehran, which is working class and and a traditional stronghold of um, government support and Northern Tehran, where sort of middle class, more um, liberal oriented um, populations exist. Like you're seeing protests in all these areas, you're seeing the student movement, you're seeing the women's movement, you're seeing the labor movement all take part in their own way. And so it's really unprecedented in terms of scope. Now, is it millions of people in the streets at all time? No, it's sporadic protests all over the place, sometimes marking the anniversary of people murdered in the streets, including Massa's, Gina's own murder. But it's been sustained now for a long period of time, and they're trying to figure out how I think to most tactfully um, scare people back into their homes.
0: Mm. Well, yesterday we mentioned reporting that 15,000 protesters were being sentenced to death by the Iranian parliament. We've since learned that was false reporting, stating the false claims that was shared 900,000 times before being taken down. Uh, U.S.
1: Congresswoman Katie Porter tweeted, I'm deeply disturbed that the Iranian regime is sentencing protesters to death. I continue to stand with the Iranian people in their fight for freedom, and I echo calls for the Biden administration to tighten sanctions and hold the regime accountable. According to the Iran Human Rights Group, uh, Iranian forces have killed over 300 protesters since the start of the uprisings and have sparked solidarity protests around the globe. Money, I want to ask you, and what do you make of the U.S. response Katie Porter's call to tighten sanctions? Do you think, one, it would be effective, and two, it's um, a, a good policy, more generally speaking? I know there's a lot of critique of sanctions and whether or not they're sufficiently targeted and if they hurt the people they're intended to hurt. What do you make of their sanction regime so far in terms of its efficacy and whether or not we should continue it going forward?
2: Um, well the main sanction regime we're talking about has nothing to do with human rights. It's always been around nuclear and national security issues. Uh Um, And those are the ones that there's a lot of debate about their efficacy or their collateral impact. And the collateral impact has been documented is it is undermine um, civil society and ordinary folk. Um, But what the Biden administration does have at its disposal and has been using and should continue to use strategically are these targeted human rights sanctions. And these can kind of create a sense of um, um, a deterrent effect amongst some human rights violators as to the fact that they could have their own, um, um, they can be personally sanctioned, that could impact them economically, that could impact them in terms of travel, in terms of their children's future, um, and I think that these these tactics should continue to be used, but strategically. Show, so, based on sound evidence, they should choose the right targets, and it shouldn't just be a you know a free for all. We want a lot of people sanctioned, but we want a lot of the right people sanctioned. Hmm.
1: And, and what are the demands looking like from inside of the country, and how you know how likely is it that they that there will be a kind of positive response?
2: Um, So it's hard to know exactly what the demands are because this is not an an organized um, movement with a sort of central mouthpiece. Um, What we do know is that the entire range of um, um, human rights and economic rights that people want, the, the dignity and basic ordinary life is missing. The reason MASA, Gina's, death was such a um, a catalyst for this movement was because she was just going about her daily life as a young woman traveling with her family and it ended tragically because the state feels it has the right to intervene in the smallest thing about you know the way you wear your attire and these types of daily indignities are ones that you know millions of Iranians experience all the time so, what people want is an entirely new system that doesn't invade their personal lives, that gives them basic dignities and freedoms. and that's that's the most we know. We don't know exactly um, what the protesters want beyond that because they haven't been able to organize. They have the all the potential leadership right now is in prison. And this is the goal of the state in some ways is to make sure that um, organization, leadership, development of a platform can not naturally develop out of these protests. So Mm -hmm. it's it's a a big question, um, but what we do see is clear resolve. There's resolve on the streets. People are facing um, enormous amount of violence and serious consequences as we see with these court verdicts, but they continue to come out and they continue to stand side by side. And that's a pretty inspiring thing to see.
0: Indeed. Mani Mustafi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. We'll have more rising right after this.
1: This month, two panels of doctors appointed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis voted to ban gender-affirming care for people under 18 in the state. The new rules will only apply to new patients. People already receiving gender-affirming care should not be impacted. Meanwhile in Tennessee, Republicans introduced a measure proposing a similar ban, saying it is the legislature's responsibility to, quote, protect the health and wealth of minors.
0: The measure will be one of the first pieces of legislation taken up in Tennessee in 2023. Activists are calling the move an attack on the LGBTQ community. It's just the latest attempt to attack the LGBTQ community.
4: There are procedures uh, already in place that make sure that the type of haymaking that people are making around this type of care are well protected against. Um, So I don't I don't see it as the issue that people are trying to make it an issue of.
0: Joining us now to weigh in on this is Kat Catinson, a detransitioned woman who testified at several of the medical board hearings in Florida. Cat, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me
0: yeah uh, we're really glad to have this discussion with you um you know why don't you talk about uh, you know what your uh, objection to uh or support for uh, prohibiting gender-affirming care is and, and maybe share you know your personal um, story or stake in this
5: Sure. so first of all the phrase gender-affirming care is very misleading um what the affirmation model entails which is what i experienced and What a lot of detransitioners who testified also experienced is that rather than when they go to the doctor asking for help with their gender dysphoria, it's not comprehensive care. Instead, they are affirmed as the opposite sex and put on a conveyor belt towards puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries. Um, So this bill in Florida, or this measure in Florida rather, was about minors receiving gender-affirming care. And for them, it's particularly dangerous because children cannot consent to making irreversible changes to their body. And also the science, um, the the Florida board ultimately decided to ban gender-affirming care for under 18 because they reviewed the science and it is in fact experimental. Um, Just because puberty blockers have been used for other conditions does not mean they're then safe to use for gender dysphoria. There's never been anything like clinical trials on this. And there's a lot of risks like osteoporosis, stunted brain development, infertility as well.
1: Kind of my right to understand that your transition story happened much later in life when you were about 28 years old.
5: Yes and no. So I started to identify as transgender when I was 13, but I was not affirmed by my parents pediatrician my peers um i was actually bullied for being gender non-conforming and um though you know at the time it was really difficult not being affirmed but it caused me to wait until i was an adult i was in my mid-20s when i transitioned and although there are still some irreversible side effects that i'm dealing with after detransitioning it's much less severe than if i had been affirmed at 13 if i had on puberty blockers, etc., because then I could have lost my fertility, I could have bone fractures, and a bunch of other unpredictable health side effects that we don't even know about because, again, it's very experimental.
1: So, I think I asked that question because I think for a lot of folks um, who are more libertarian minded on either side of the aisle, one might say adults make decisions that they sometimes regret, sometimes people get plastic surgery that they regret. There's obviously a lot of reporting right now about the trends away from the butt lifts that were very popular and are no longer popular. And I don't mean to conflate, obviously, this with what people go through when they transition, but they say, well, people make mistakes, but that's up for adults to do and decide on their own. And so the conversation has been very much focused on what to do about minors. But your own story doesn't seem to necessarily track with the concern here, given that you were not affirmed and didn't transition till you were an older adult, so I wonder how you see your own personal story as fitting in with the conversation about these laws that are coming down the pike and, and or have been enacted in Florida and are on the on the table in Tennessee.
5: So, of the detransitioners who testified in Florida, um, I think there were maybe ten or eleven of us altogether, and um, so far, just two of us had transitioned as minors. But I think the fact that so many people are transitioning as adults and regretting it and having irreversible effects that they have to deal with for the rest of their life, I think it just illustrates the fact that children definitely are too young to do this. They, you know, they cannot consent to this. And furthermore, even adults who are transitioning, you know, a lot of us are coming from a place of of severe mental illness and distress. And so, it was almost like we felt like we didn't have another choice and we weren't presented with any other options by the doctors. So just because someone's an adult, I don't necessarily think they're able to give informed consent if they are in a, a state of severe distress.
0: You've talked, I believe previously about, uh, the, the E, what you perceive to be the ease at which you are prescribed, um, uh, testosterone over the phone. I think, can you speak about that?
5: Yes. So, um, a lot of people tell me that this couldn't have happened, but it, but actually if you visit Planned Parenthood's website, they do claim that they do telehealth and they also say that they prescribe hormones on the first appointment, um, without a requirement for a letter from a mental health provider. So I I did go through Planned Parenthood and for me, it was about a 30 minute phone conversation before I was prescribed testosterone. And I do recall, um, The doctor listing a few of the risks but it was very brief and i i feel like it was largely downplayed uh to the point where i did not realize how experimental the care was like i i thought the science was a lot stronger than it actually is
1: Yeah. Well, according to the Online Health and Wellbeing Clinic, uh, gender uh, detransitioning is when a person who has already transitioned returns to their life as the gender they were assigned at birth. According to the most recent national survey in 2015, of nearly 28,000 people, 8% of respondents reported some kind of detransition. But of that 8%, 62% reported doing so only temporarily, due to societal, financial, or family pressures. So I, I have a, a lot of sympathy. I mean, I've, I've read you, your um, your writing or talking interviews about how you're a singer and how you specifically requested a low dose of testosterone because you wanted to preserve your voice. You weren't sure what the effects were going to be on your voice. And that they, in fact, di- they prescribed you twice as much as they would normally have prescribed. I'm not sure if that was an error or what was happening there. But again, it's, I, I have sympathy you know on a on a human level for what you've gone through i guess my question my my hesitation here is how much of this is a generalized medical malpractice issue there are people who are overprescribed psychiatric medications and things like that and how much of this is part of what seems to be a larger cultural project of raising up um, trans people and trans issues by conservatives in a way that doesn't seem to be as 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 calculated to actually make the lives of people who are struggling with gender identity issues better. I mean, do you feel any of that dissonance?
5: Yes. Um, so a lot of times I get called you know a a right-wing conservative or that i just don't care what happens to trans people you know i don't have any compassion for them and it really couldn't be further from the truth like i want people with trans identity who are struggling with gender dysphoria like i want the best possible care for them and um if i could i just want to remark on that survey because uh the survey from 2015 because uh the population that was being surveyed in that study was a population that still identifies as trans. And we know from other research, um, a study by Lisa Littman in 2021, and also another study by Ellie Vandenboos in, in 2021, that the majority, the vast majority of detransitioners no longer identify as trans. So that study by Jack Turbin, um, who's also being funded by one of the companies that um, manufactures puberty blockers. It, Leaves out the vast majority of detransitioners. So it's actually not an, an accurate reflection of how many people detransition. Um, so that study gets cited a lot, but um, people tend to not cite as much the studies on detransitioners. Mm. But anyway, I'm just saying that because I would like to see the best quality of care for both trans identified people and detransitioners. But as it stands right now, we need much better science, particularly about the long term effects on physical and mental health
2: mm. are
1: you concerned about the effects i mean the, the rejoinder that people have is that even even granting um you know these the other study that you brought up it does seem like the majority of people like in the world we live in today where there's so much cultural pressure quite honestly against being trans obviously there's a great deal of stigma i don't think most people wake up one day and say i want to Uh, challenge myself by moving through the world in a way that I know that's going to get me a lot of social um, critique. Uh, Because that's the case, most people who do it do it because they really, really very strongly feel like this is a better outcome for them. This is how they meet. They feel compelled to live their lives. And I do understand that there are these cases of detransitioners and those stories haven't always been given a platform and voiced equally in the public sphere. But I wonder if you're concerned at all about whether or not there is a trade-off that's happening where people who, the majority of trans people who do want to transition and do want to be affirmed, even if it's to be called by the name of their choice and be allowed to wear the clothes of their choosing, are going to not be able to do so, and that that has its own corresponding health and social wellness and mental health implications.
5: So... Again, I, I don't think we have, I mean, anecdotally, yes, um, many people say they are happy after transition, but I think the problem is that other options to treat gender dysphoria are not being researched. And also, you know, you mentioned how difficult it is to be trans and I don't deny that, but I think a lot of it has to do with culture's reaction to gender nonconforming people in general, like, you know, to put it simply masculine women and feminine men Uh, They tend to get treated like the bottom of the barrel in society and a lot of the time the reason why people want to transition is to escape that discomfort by then passing as the opposite sex and so um, it's just it's a complex issue and I definitely don't want to prevent anyone from from getting the best care that will lead to the, the best outcomes for mental health, but I just don't think we're looking at all options to treat gender dysphoria. And I also think we need to work as a broader society to accept people for how they are naturally so that people don't feel forced to start hormones and get surgeries.
0: Mm. Well, Kat, thank you so much for joining us to uh, talk about your experience. It's a very complicated issue, and we really appreciate it.
5: Thank you so much.
0: We'll have more rising in just a minute.
1: Texas has filed a bill that would make consenting to gender-affirming care child abuse with prison sentences for parents. According to queer legislative researcher Erin Reed, the bill will mean a rounding up of trans kids if passed. She tweeted, In Virginia, a bill has been released which would ban transgender people from sports that match their gender identity if passed. It requires the physical examination to include biological sex. Meanwhile, in Ohio, a motion to force a vote to tell all schools in Ohio that Title IX rights should be denied to trans students has been denied 9 to 10.
0: Hmm. Aaron Reed joins us now to discuss this and to expand on the legislation being introduced across the country. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. So what are your views on these efforts to uh, prohibit this kind of care and such things?
3: Yeah, so I think that we're seeing a national movement by those on the right to essentially ban gender-affirming care. Um, Force affirming teachers to misgender and using correct names for transgender students, as well as ban transgender people from participation in many areas of public life and so I am opposed to these to these particular issues, um, but nonetheless, we are seeing these kinds of bills proliferate around the country
1: so to what do you attribute that I mean it, on one hand, it does seem like Republicans are very much exploiting um, a cultural shift, as it were. I think progressives, liberals have largely been winning a lot of victories with respect to LGBTQIA rights for the last 10, 15, 20 years or so, um, and what might be described as kind of the post Will and Grace era. And it has felt like we're winning, winning, winning until you get to this certain point that perhaps there are these moments where culture moves a little bit faster, like uh, maybe popular culture moves a little bit faster than traditional parts of the country, and Republicans are exploiting this tipping point, is there any conversation happening about whether or not there are moments to to, to revise and, and reevaluate? So the focus has to come on uh, kids under 18 and what might be probably outlier cases of people potentially getting treatment that wasn't well indicated, having regrets. Detransitioners are a big part of the conversation. What do people say, or what is the in-group In in community conversation like about whether or not there is any opportunity there for recalibrating or is it all considered to be in bad faith?
3: So in the post-2016 era, whenever the North Carolina bathroom ban was Mm -hmm. passed and then later undefeated, um, we have seen a reaction against transgender acceptance in the United States. And I do think that this is because there has been more visibility of transgender people. Um, people do feel more free to be themselves, to come out. And therefore, you see people being transgender in public visibly. As a result, I do think that this is scary to some people. People don't, a lot of times, understand transgender people. And that can lead to misunderstandings that then get targeted via legislation. I think we've seen this with several minority communities in America going back all throughout history. and so. I do want to caution um, people from overreading the attempts to ban gender affirming care. Because one thing that I will note is that last year we did have the most ever anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ bills filed in the United States, something around 250, depending on which source you use. The vast majority of those were defeated, including in red states, places like South Dakota, places like Missouri, um, and so. I think it's important for people to, for Republicans, for instance, not to overplay their hand on this issue. Mm. That's well taken. So I'm seeing
0: some concerns, though, expressed by people, not just people who are Republicans. Uh, there was a write up in the New York Times about puberty blockers, uh, making note of some objections that even some medical, uh, some scientists people have that there's not been enough research on how this could affect, um, that it does, in fact, affect bone density in some people. Um, there are studies in uh, Nordic countries and England going on. There's been a kind of, it looks like to me, an easing off of, of how readily um, puberty blockers will be prescribed to very young people. Um, do, you, what do you What do you make of those concerns? And, and, and that's really what we're talking about. I agree with the bathroom stuff, really dumb. I don't know who cares who uses what bathroom. I don't know why we're concentrating on that at all. But uh, the concern that parents have that I understand that, young people who can't consent to all sorts of things, and you know what, what should the, should the proper process should be, given what looked to me like not totally unfounded concerns about um, these medical treatments?
3: Of course. So gender-affirming care, especially among transgender youth, is a very complex issue. And given the medical consensus right now in America, uh, among all of the major medical organizations, in the efficacy of their treatment, but also given concerns that other organizations might have and other activists might have. The decision, in my opinion, and in the um, opinion of many legislatures around the United States, is that this is a complex decision that should be left between families and their doctors. It is whenever you try to legislate what a family can do with their doctors and with their care teams that you start running into issues. I do think that, for in your particular case, around detransitioners, for instance, um, they deserve love and support and acceptance, and they deserve all of the resources that we can give them. I will note, though, that the current wave of political detransitioners who are advocating against um, transgender care in legislatures around the United States remind me very similar to the ex gay movement of the 1990s and the early 2000s. Mm. You have them being paraded out in front of public, uh, essentially claiming that gender affirming care and that being trans is a fad and it's something that you can. Fall out from. And this may be true for some people. However, the vast majority of people, and I know many detransitioners myself personally, who detransition don't do so because they're not transgender. They do so because they face family un- unacceptance, they face peer abuse, they face the lack of ability to be employed as a result of being trans. And the fear that's within the detransitioning community is high. And so I think that we need to turn down the temperature, especially around detransitioners.
0: I've heard. Some detransitioners describe that, but also as a pressure to have transitioned in the first place due to a kind of maybe they're not non-binary or they don't easily uh, match male or female stereotypes. And they're, you know, obviously young people are much more fluid in their gender expression, which I am totally fine with. Um, I I think a concern that some parents or even some scientists, some people would have is that uh, just a broader trend toward gender fluidity that is fine or should be accepted, but then is getting more of those young people will be swept up and, and will, will be easily affirmed and then maybe transition when actually all they were was gender fluid.
3: So I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's actually, in the opinion of many people within the activist community, the high levels of gatekeeping that lead to that. Mm-hmm. Because what you end up having is gender fluid people or people that are Um, that may be transgender but may not be seeking a full medical transition, essentially having to pursue a full medical transition in order to get legal acceptance. Mm. And so in many states, for instance, you you have things like medical transition required for legal acceptance. Mm. And so it is in these heightening of gates and the... Um, narrowing of pathways in which a transgender person can experience being transgender that I think you do see people that feel like they might have to portray themselves in that way. Do you mean in order to like, uh, like have the right
0: uh, uh, description on an identification card or something? Was that what you Description
3: on an identification card, changing your birth certificate, having sports access to teams. bathrooms, mm-hmm. sports teams, et cetera. So it's in these laws that are, that I think are being proposed in order to prevent that issue, that you're actually seeing it heighten that issue. And so I think that we should allow transgender youth and gender diverse youth to have a variety of options and leave these decisions between the families and their doctors. And I think even in, even in very Republican states, this argument has landed. And people do realize that maybe this isn't something that we should legislate.
1: Yeah, there seems to be something obviously libertarian about your position, to say, let it stay within between parents and families. And obviously, that doesn't mean that there are I mean, you, you can talk to detransitioners who will make a very compelling case for why they have regrets. But that doesn't mean anything about people who want to make a different kind of decision, or the fact that living life does not insulate you from having regrets about all kinds of decisions that we make. In other contexts, we don't say we're going to take parents away from children. Remember, the context in which we're having this conversation is a bill to make it criminal for parents to support gender-affirming care, which you should also say is a pretty broad category that has largely gone undefined here. But would you also include things like allowing people to Uh, use the name of their choosing and use the pronouns of their choosing and to dress in the way that they uh, choose to be part of what you would describe as gender affirming care. And is that that kind of care implicated in a bill like this or is it stricter is is it more
3: strictly about medical interventions it depends on the bill so in texas no in texas it is strictly puberty blockers and hormone therapy however we did see in florida for instance the department of health uh, release guidance that stated that social transition should also be included Mm. and so you are seeing an expansion of what they're willing to go after what they're willing to target i know that we recently saw in tennessee a bill that would define Um, male and female impersonators, for instance, as being covered under anti-sexuality laws and Mm. obscenity laws. And so um, we are seeing an expansion. We're seeing an expansion in age ranges. In some cases, like in Missouri, they propose going up to the age of 25. Mm. And you know, I think that people, especially certain legislatures and certain politicians, are focusing in on this the wrong way. And I think that they're actually hurting the people that they're trying to help in doing this. Yeah,
0: look, I don't have... Any appetite whatsoever to really get the government involved in this question, or really, really any question. Uh, but I, I think that you know, just to represent what people who are concerned about this will say, I, I think they have an image in their head of uh, you have a you have a, a, a kid, a, a young teen or a preteen, uh, maybe a boy, but is interested in dresses, is interested in dolls. If they end up talking to a counselor with a more uh, progressive or activist worldview, they might very quickly be put down a pathway toward puberty blockers and transitioning when Odds are that kid might just be gay. They might just be a feminine boy, cetera. That's a concern I hear. Um, it, you know, in your experience, from your knowledge of the community, is it is it as easy as that, or or is there pushback and interrogation of what well, you know? What do you actually want? Are you just uncomfortable in your body because it's hard to go through puberty? It's hard to be a teenager. You know, those kinds of questions. There's a fear that it's 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 being. the pathway is, is too easy and then you'll end up getting more false positives given this greater gender fluidity.
3: Of course. And so I speak to many families of transgender youth. I've helped several families of transgender youth. And I can say that of my personal experience, this is what I can speak to my personal experience, all of them that I've spoken to have had Years of psychological care, years of care teams have met with multiple doctors. Many parents initially were unsupportive that have become supportive of transition care for their kids. Not all of them are seeking medical transitions either. I think this is a complex issue, undoubtedly is a complex issue, around gender-affirming care for trans youth and the different forms that that can take. But again, I really do think that in these cases where there are complex issues and where there is a variety of medical guidance, that you you have to allow families to make that decision. And there might be uh, there might be decisions that are wrongly made, but th- that's the case I think in all kinds of care that you would get for kids.
1: Yeah, the the what about the children is really the the linchpin for a lot of these conservative arguments because they think they understand that it seems extremely invasive to be telling what, now twenty five year olds what they can and cannot do, and it does seem like a lot of the 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 fearmongering the preciousness precious about kids is about specifically people's fascination with people's sexuality, their sex lives, their sexual organs in particular. And there is there is a part of my, me that sometimes says, OK, if it's all about the kids, if you can get all these Republicans to let, let go of this by simply saying, we're not going to do anything until folks are 18, is that, is that a concession that should be made? On the other hand, I understand that there are a lot of people who sincerely stick with their transitions, who feel like if they had been able to start earlier, if they had been able to start on these hormone block- blockers and st- stuff earlier, that they would be better able to pass, that their life in the cho- in their chosen gender would be easier because we still do live in a world where people are very hostile to trans people and the ability to pass is somewhat coveted. But this gets back to the point that Robbie was making earlier. How much of this is about people's discomfort with being gender non-conforming and does wanting to help people get access to hormones, et cetera, earlier is that just me or a good, good, well-meaning left person buying into the value of, of, of passing? Do you know what I'm saying? It's, like a, it's an interesting
3: back and forth that I have with myself psychologically. Of course, of course. And, you know, I think that there are so many things that have to be considered whenever you're making these decisions. And I think that everybody is doing the best that they can. I truly think that the parents want the best for their kids. I think that the doctors... Want the best for their kids. I even think that the legislatures want the best for the kids, regardless of Republican or Democratic legislatures. Mm-hmm. And as long as we are approaching this from that perspective, I think that ultimately we have to trust the families. Like We have to. Mm-hmm. We, we trust the families in so many other areas of life. And you hear right now parental rights being a big thing around transgender issues. And I think for ideological consistency here, We need to have parental rights in terms of how you determine the care that your kid receives. Mm. And I mean, we're all doing the best we can. Parents are doing the best they as as they can. And you know, I think that for a lot of kids, for a lot of transgender kids, this care does make a huge difference in their lives. Mm. Um, And you know, withdrawing that care also would make a huge difference in their lives.
1: Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us, Erin Reed. This has been a really wonderful conversation. And uh, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be breaking down the FTX drama even more with finance reporter Kevin Cirilli.
0: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also available on Roku and other streaming services, so catch us there as well. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.